In the year 1394, Pope Boniface IX called for a new crusade against the Ottoman Turks, who had recently crossed into Europe. But although this call inspired thousands to take up the cross, the crusaders were ultimately crushed by the Ottomans at the fateful Battle of Nicopolis. Unfortunately for the Ottomans, though, they too would soon taste defeat. Defeat at the hands of the last great nomadic conqueror, a man known to history as Timur or Temur, Tamerlane or simply Timur. This Timur was a seemingly invincible conqueror who created an empire that stretched from India to Syria, from the Russian steppe to the Persian Gulf. His armies were deemed unstoppable, his cities the grandest in the world, his civilization as the birthplace of a renaissance, and he himself remembered as one of the most brutal men who has ever lived. And I want to investigate this all. If this intrigues you, then check out the Timur podcast, a show that covers the life, conquests, character, and legacy of Amir Timur. The show can be found in most places that you find your history podcasts, or head on over to TimmerPodcast.com for more information. And with that said, let's learn about some popes. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 83 Pope Benedict the Second. Second. I know, it feels like we've had more Benedicts by this point. We're on episode 83, we've had so many Johns, you'd think that there would be another Benedict, but here we are. Well, and there's obviously going to be 16 Benedicts. Are they all, like, shoved together? I don't... There are certain Pope names that just start to clump. And you'll get so many of them just in a row for no reason. Suddenly it'll just be like, Gregory, 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 Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. It just happens. And then it stops happening. And then it's just going to do that sometimes. So this is Benedict II. And Benedict was born in Rome and his father's name was John. There is some small postulations that he might have been a member of the Savelli family which was certainly established by now, but not prominent yet, although there isn't any records that would verify or deny this. If he was part of this family, though, that would mean he would be a very distant relative of between two and four future popes from the 18th to 13th century, depending on what sources you trust. So the closest historically to him would be Pope Gregory II, who is definitely a member of the Savelli family. And I was able to finally consult the book on the podcast on air that we got from Carlos for this, which was the Papal Genealogy book by George L. Williams. So I was super duper excited about this. There's a whole chapter about popes from the Savelli family. Perfect. Love it. Anyways. Benedict had a very early start in the church, first attending the Schola Cantorum, which trained boys for the papal choir in liturgical singing. We have actually mentioned the Schola Cantorum before because it was established by Pope Sylvester all the way back in episode 25, and made into a lasting church institution by Pope Gregory, episode 66. But for whatever reason, our great singer Leo II wasn't in it. Well, it's possible that he was in it, that they just didn't mention that he was in it. Oh, they didn't write down that this perfect singing man was in a choir for singing? No, no, because he was just so special. He wasn't a singing choir boy with a great voice. 
He was this wonderful cleric with such a fantastic voice. He didn't possibly maybe learn it a little. It just came to him naturally. So naturally. He just had that beautiful psalmody, remember? (laughs) Jeez. Okay, well, we're not talking about him. Benedict II in the Scola Cantorum gained a reputation for being a talented singer, like his predecessor, and for having an extensive knowledge of scripture. And also, like his predecessor, Benedict definitely had the love and admiration of our current Liber Pontificalis writer. So, same kind of vibe. This is what they wrote about him. From his early youth he had served in the church, in divine scripture and in chant while he was still a boy, and then in the office of the priesthood he showed himself as befitted a man worthy of his name. In him grace and benediction from above truly overflowed. In both name and actions he was a worthy man to reach the dignity of the pontificate, a lover of the poor, humble, mild, with compassion for all, and a most bountiful hand. The Liber Pontificalis writer really likes these two men. Yeah. A bountiful hand. A bountiful hand. A lover of the poor. I love how they say he was worthy of his name, and then they talk about benediction of above, but they're also clearly referencing St. Benedict of Nursia, just like very gently in there, because everything that has to do with Benedict has to do with Benedict of Nursia always and forever. The bountiful hand, I know, is like, oh, he gave a lot to the poor, but it does sound like he has really large hands. It always makes me think of a saga thing, and I can't remember what saga it was in, but they always do a category where they rate the best nicknames, and the best nickname that has ever, ever come up on the show is Half Dan the Open-Handed but Stingy with Meat. (laughs) So anytime somebody talks about bountiful hands and generosity, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking of Half Dan the Open-Handed but Stingy with Meat. I know you don't watch Always Sunny because they're horrible people, but... True. Sometimes they go to court and one of their uncles is a lawyer and he thinks he's more distinguished if he has larger hands, so he... Over the course of several seasons, gets larger and larger hands, like plastic hands, to put on himself during court. Wouldn't it just be obvious that you have fake hands? <laughs> yes, it's that's the thing. It's very obvious that his hands are plastic. I would start to think maybe your lawyer is crazy and retrial on that account alone. <laughs> but when I hear bountiful hands, I was like, ah, giant plastic hands. Good. Well, from now on, we will imagine him with giant plastic hands. Let's see how this plays out for his papacy. Going back to it, from the Scola Cantorum, Benedict became a priest, and then on December 5th of 680, he was made a cardinal by Pope Agatho alongside Leo II, who then becomes Pope. And then when Leo died in June of 683, Benedict was elected to be his successor. Now, he still had to wait for imperial confirmation before he could be consecrated, which happened about a year later, in June of 684. However, very shortly after he was consecrated, Benedict re-entered negotiations with the emperor about the role the empire played in papal elections, much like Leo had. And I think this is you sending me a message. Yes. Wow, those are some terrible big plastic hands! If that showed up in the courtroom, I'd be like, monster, what? (sighs) Terrible. 
So he felt that it was time to end the long stretches the church had to go without a pope and hoped that the conciliatory nature of the emperor could be extended a little further. And out of these negotiations, Benedict was able to obtain a mandate from the emperor, which abolished the need to wait for imperial confirmation. This is a big deal. From the Liber Pontificalis, I quote, He received two mandates of the great and clement Emperor Constantine to the venerable clergy, people, and the most fortunate army of Rome, in which the emperor conceded that the one elected to the apostolic see should be ordained pontiff immediately and without delay. So, this is huge. It doesn't mean that the emperor would stop ratifying the church choice altogether, but it does mean that it's not necessary to wait for a letter for the emperor saying, yeah, that man can be pope before the consecration takes place. And the exarch could still provide the ratification if, for whatever reason, it was necessary. Like, if there was a conflict, they could just go to the exarch, and the exarch would be like, this man is pope. So everything is going to happen a lot quicker. They can now consecrate quite quickly. But this goodwill and excellent relationship with the emperor didn't stop there, because we're also told that the pope accepted two locks of hair, each belonging to one of the emperor's sons, Justinian and Heraclius, sent by the emperor, which acted as a symbolic adoption of the boys. <sighs> where's what's, where's to keep these hair? Why do you send hair? I don't like it. It's a symbolic adoption, so if you wanted me to adopt your children, you I'm could not just send me their hair. <laughs> Please don't. I would be very concerned if we you did. We did keep Steve the hair paste for a while, in so much as my mother cut it off and then gave it to us. I don't like it. I don't like it. Do you remember Steve the hair piece? I don't. Well, when Rowan was little, he, like, he came out with hair, and then he was entirely bald suddenly. And then the only thing that grew was this giant fat hairpiece on the side of his head that we named Steve. I do remember Steve now. Yes, I do. There were there were pictures of of Steve on Facebook. Steve <laughs> did the ice bucket challenge. Oh my gosh, that's right. I can now picture Steve very vividly in my mind. <laughs> this is our friendship, everybody. This is our friendship. Okay. Symbolic adoption of the emperor's sons. Like, we're not quite in the era of, like, official wardship or fostering, but this act of tying the pope into the imperial family as, like, the godfather, no pun intended, represents the most positive secular relationship the pope has had with the emperor in quite a long time. It's been good, but now it's amazing. So then Pope Benedict also decided to check in with the more distant branches of the church to ensure the suppression of monothelitism as decreed by the Third Council of Constantinople was being accepted and enacted, particularly from bishoprics who had not quite sent letters of their adherence to the canons, right? He sent them out, a bunch of people wrote back and said, we're doing this, a bunch of people didn't, so he wants to ensure that those people are doing it. Do the thing. Are you doing the thing because you have not told me you are doing the thing? If you have not done the thing, please do the thing. And this turned out to be most prominent in Hispania. So, Spain. And he wrote letters to the bishops urging them to confirm 
their condemnation of monothelitism. So if you haven't done the thing, please do the thing and then confirm with me that you are doing the thing. He also tried to sway the deposed Bishop Macarius to come around. We spoke about Macarius in the episode on the Third Council of Constantinople, as he was the only prominent bishop to vehemently argue in favor of monothelitism. In fact, he'd argued so hard for monothelitism that he told the emperor he would rather die than accept the new orthodoxy, and therefore, at the end of the council, he had been deposed. So, since the council, Macarius had been sent to Rome, where he was being kept in a monastery within the city, in the hopes that he'd recant eventually. So he's a a monastic prisoner. And when the bishop who succeeded Macarius in Antioch died, Pope Benedict came to Macarius at the monastery and spent 30 days with him to try and persuade him to recant and confess diophilite orthodoxy so that he could maybe be restored to his former bishopric, because now it's open again. Although the lack of any further discussion on Macarius gives a pretty strong indication that maybe the Pope was not successful. Alas. Because he is definitely not the next Bishop of Antioch again. Oh, well. And then an appeal arrived from St. Wilfred of York. Do you remember St. Wilfred? It's been a while, but we have talked about Wilfred of York a fair bit. No, I do not remember Wilfred of York. He made his first visit to Rome in the papacy of Pope Eugene, episode 77, and then he returned in the papacy of Agatho, episode 81, to appeal his deposition and the splitting of his bishopric. All right, so this was all technically months ago in my brain. Exactly. That's why I have given you the summary. (laughs) Thank you. Pope Agatho had given Wilfred a papal decree that he should be reinstated as Archbishop of York, and that he should be the one to choose the bishops for the newly created bishoprics that had come out of carving up his jurisdiction. And we said in that episode that King Egfrith hadn't been willing to accept the papal degree and had arrested Wilfred. It was while Wilfred was in prison that Benedict sent a further edict that confirmed the papal mandate for the restoration of Wilfred to the archbishopric, which helped to facilitate the reconciliation of Wilfred with the next king, Aldfrid, in 686. Unfortunately, that reconciliation will happen after Pope Benedict is dead, so we will definitely come back to that in time. Because Wilfred is so not done popping up in our episodes. So Benedict also got to work in Rome to restore and decorate churches that had either fallen derelict or were beginning to show their age. From the Liber Pontificalis, it says, He restored St. Peter's and the Church of the Martyr St. Lawrence, called that of Lucina. Also at St. Valentine's on the Via Flaminia, he provided over the altar an altar cloth with studs and thin bands and a very precious border around it, adorned with gold buttons. Similarly, at St. Mary's at Martyrs, another altar cloth of purple with a cross and chevrons and four gold button studs with a very beautiful border of all silk. Also at the above titulus of Lucina, another decorated altar cloth of all silk. He also provided two gold service chalices, each weighing one pound. Trejars. Yeah, you loop that place and you're like, you get this thing of all silk and a platter. 
and I will point out that I'm including this with Benedict because it's it's considered quite important to him that he was doing this restoration effort. But know that for all of the popes that we're covering, we do get chunks of the Liber Pontificalis like this, where they just start listing all the stuff that they give to the churches. Here's some chalices, here's some altar cloths, here's some whatever. And I don't normally include them. So they are there. There are other popes doing this thing, but it seemed to matter more to Benedict. So that's why we're including it. And now, like we've seen in the new entries of the Liber Pontificalis, the writer has once again given us an account of the astronomical and geographical phenomena during the papacy. This is what we would normally call omens. We'll see. Quote, In his time there appeared a star in the very clear night sky, at about vigils, for some days between Christmas and Epiphany. It was totally overshadowed like the moon beneath a cloud. Again in February, after St. Valentine's Day, the star rose in daytime at midday in the west and sank in eastern parts. Afterwards, in March, Mount Vesuvius in Campania erupted for some days, and all places around were wiped out by its dust and ash. That's an omen. <laughs> this account mirrors one that's very similar from Paul the Deacon's History of the Langobards. At this time, between Christmas and Epiphany, there appeared at night in a clear sky a star near the Pleiades, shaded in every way as when the moon stands behind a cloud. Afterwards, in the month of February, at noonday, there arose a star in the west, which set with a great flash in the direction of the east. Then, in the month of March, there was an eruption of Bebius, aka Vesuvius. That makes that terrible volcano sound like a, a doge meme. So you have to make that, give, give Vesuvius some eyes and a little, like... Yeah, and, like, the little rosy cheeks. Yes, and then just put, like, much ash very well. <laughs> the last of this quote is, For some days, and all green things growing round it were exterminated by its dust and ashes. So I looked into this eruption on sites with historical data on Vesuvius eruptions, and all I could find out about it was that it was effusive, which means the lava flows steadily without an explosion, and that it was with, quote-unquote, imposing lava flow. So it was leaky. Yeah, it was, it was like a leaky, it was, it was doing the pour rather than the boosh, you know? Didn't do a, a Mount St. Helens, it just did a flow. Does Vesuvius, where is it? Does it still erupt every once in a while? I never hear about it anymore. It is in Naples, and it still definitely has some activity, but that whole area is very extremely well monitored, because if it erupted like it did in the past, two million people would die. Okay. I just, I don't hear a lot about Vesuvius anymore. It does the occasional smokiness, but yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't done the big the big explosion in quite a while. A Mount St. Helens situation where people are constantly watching it for even if it like burps a little. Yeah, well, I mean, that was that was smoking not that long ago either. I think the last big eruption, I'm, I'm not looking at facts here. This is just from my brain, but I'm pretty sure that Vesuvius had some activity in like the 60s. Are you pulling a Norman Votin on me? I I am because I don't actually I just remember reading somewhere that it was like in the sixties. No, I lied. It was nineteen forty four. I have now looked it up because I'm not like Norman. 
I'm gonna shame you if you're gonna pretend to Norman at me. I, I, I said I was a check it fast. <laughs> it, it erupted in March 1944, seven months after the Allied invasion of Italy. Thanks, Google. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, so I also had less luck trying to track down this flash in the sky because it's too vague and I don't have a strong enough astronomical background to try and get it to be more, but we could assume some type of comet activity. So... That's the thing. And that happened. And then Pope Benedict died on May 8th of 685 of a sudden illness. Oh. Well. The Libra Pontificalis tells us that in his will, he left 30 pounds of gold to be distributed amongst the Roman clergy, the monasteries, and the mansionare, which are the church keepers. And he was buried in Old St. Peter's, and his tomb was destroyed for New St. Peter's. But unlike many of the popes we've dealt with lately, his epitaph has actually been preserved. Yay, it wasn't destroyed because someone messed up. It got lucky. This is what his epitaph says. Father Benedict, you are leaving behind your great monuments, your titles and honor of virtues, sorrow. Like lightning, you flash with mental splendor. But in a small period of time, you accomplished your many projects. You complete with distinction all the official duties of priests, and by yourself you flourish in the good that each one of them has. Because you grew great by your shining merits, you rightly tended the pontifical throne of the fathers. You had no ambition to seize honor, for honor is the fruit of your character. And because you, shepherd, skillfully ruled Christ's host, claim now the lofty rewards of the saved flock. I feel like there needs to be an opportunity where I can tell somebody that, like lightning, you flash with mental splendor. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know if I like that one. I feel like you could use it in a very sarcastic way. Yeah, but it, it just sounds like a Pokemon attack. <laughs> mental splendor? Flashing with mental splendor. And then the other one is confused. That could also work. I think I think we've already have a patron saint pope of Pokemon we do. or something. I'll have to check and see which of our popes is patron saint of Pokemon. I don't think it was that long ago. Are you spoiling that he's a saint? I don't know. You don't know? I wrote this so long ago. Yes, he is a saint. <laughs> I wrote this episode like back in March. This is a trash episode. I apologize. <laughs> So that is Benedict, and now it's time to rate him. Okay, let's rate him. Papatum infallium. So the papacy no longer has to wait around for imperial confirmations to be consecrated. They're still going to be imperially confirmed, but this is reclaiming some clerical independence. He supports Wilfred's claim in England, and he pushed the canons of the ecumenical council to squash out monothelite vestiges in Spain. So, there's there's some stuff. What do you want to give him? I don't know what I want to give him. <laughs> well, I'm I'm kind of debating between a two and a three. The okay. not needing imperial confirmation is is big. Uh, Wilfred in England and pushing the cannons are kind of mm, so. It's I'll, I'll give him like two for imperial confirmation, and then the bonus point for the other two bits of information, and give him a three. All right, I will give him a two, then. 
I'm not feeling super excited. He's not super exciting, but that Imperial confirmation piece is definitely going to lessen our, like, sede vacantes of, like, a year, a year and a half. Yeah, which is good. That's a good thing for some points, but not all them points. Yeah. So he'll get a five in Papatum and Valium. Fructus prohibitum. It is a zero, because again, there was no sourcing on his scandal. Oh, no, no scandals. Oh, there are popes that will make up for that. They're coming. Perhaps he is the most troubling pope. (laughs) Don't even get me started again. I wrote a whole thing. Seculari impactum. Again, the papacy no longer has to wait for imperial confirmation to be consecrated. And he symbolically adopts the sons of the emperor. Uh, I feel like that might be worth a point each for each. (laughs) Hair. You can give him a point for each lock of hair. No. (laughs) Minus a point for hair. I'm definitely going to give him two points for his good secular impact with the emperor. All right, I can give him two points, but not for hair. So that gives him a four in seculari impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Okay. Here it comes. This is his face. <laughs> Why does it look like you can't put googly eyes on him? It kind of does. He kind of just looks sad. No. Mm. Okay. I don't, I don't know how to rate this. It really does look like someone took a regular old painting and pasted some googly eyes on it. I'm going to give it a four for just the googly eyes. It feels like I can shake this picture and <laughs> flick about. Also, I have questions. I'll make him googly. We could probably find a way to do that and make a gif out of it. Probably. And then you'd probably feel even better about him. You know, honestly, I don't, I don't feel very strongly about this one in any way, shape, or form. So I'm just going to give him a three. You can shake it. And his eyes will go places. But we're not shaking it, and he's not Googling, so I don't know. If somebody makes a googly image, I will I will give him, like, bonus points afterwards. But right now, it's just a three. So when we take his seven and divide it out, he gets a 1.75. Tempus Pontificus. June 26th of 684 to May 8th of 685, so almost a year. And a score of 0.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Yes, he is a saint. (laughs) He has a feast day of May 7th. He has no patron sainthood, but one website says he's the patron saint of Europe, and they're wrong because that's clearly Saint Benedict of Nursia. Wrong Benedict. Wrong, Benedict. And I'm sure that's going to happen with all of the freaking popes that I have to deal with that are called Benedict. Except for, you know, the one who's still alive. Okay, so his patron sainthood obviously has to be plastic body parts. Okay, so yes, he will be the patron sainthood of, of plastic body parts. I want to ask for clarification Does that mean just really fake plastic body parts, or are we including, like, actual prosthetic, functional- No, I don't want to include prosthetics. I would like to give that patron sainthood to somebody else. What I'm talking about is, like, giant fake plastic hands. 
and those tiny hands that you can stick on the hand of your finger and googly eyes and just like really fake plastic body parts. So let's call him the patron saint of novelty plastic body parts. Yes, novelty body parts. Oh, did you ever think, St. Benedict II, that you would become the patron saint of novelty plastic <laughs> He's the one with giant hands and googly eyes. He's going to be very popular on the internet. Excellent. I love it. So that brings us to his total score, which is a 12. Just a nice, flat 12. That, that works for me. And that brings me to ask you. If you think he is papally enough, possessy enough, has given you enough plastic body parts for a papal bull. No, I mean, he would be real meany, but not bull worthy. I mean, that's fair, because, I mean, we did say several times in this episode that we weren't very excited about him. That's fair. But we are not done, because we have a Pope watch. Ooh, boy. Technically, this is a Pope Emeritus Pope Watch, but on July 1st of 2020, Monsignor Jord Ratzinger, the brother of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, passed away at the age of 96. This is just one week after Benedict made his first visit outside the Vatican since his resignation to visit his brother in Regensburg when it was clear that he was ailing and going to pass away. Just as a side note, all the photos that showed Benedict in transit for this trip shows that the former Pope is also really not looking well. Yeah, he's not looking great. He is definitely not fine. He is definitely not fine, and he is the younger brother, but his older brother has now passed away. I'm glad they let him go. Yeah, well, and I don't think that anybody would have stopped him, you know? Not like they don't have private planes and things that could take him safely amidst our current pandemic crisis. But, and and by the way, uh, Jorg's death had nothing to do with that. Just it old. Was, he was an old man in ailing health to 98? begin with. 98? Old. 96. 96, still old. So Jorg was also a clergy member. He served as the head of the Regensburger Domspatzen, which is a Catholic choir with a reputation dating back to the 10th century. So it's quite a, a substantial position. And I don't personally have a lot to say about this. Um, I think that Benedict's brother, unfortunately, was the guy who got all the nice, charming genes in that family. So I am saddened by his passing, and we certainly just had to mark it. As, as a moment that has happened. Rest in peace, Monsignor Ratzinger. <laughs> I don't know how to wrap that up in a way that's not terribly sad, but we have thank yous to make, so let's go there. We need to absolve some patrons of their temporal sins, so huge thank you to Linda Yancey and Lennon Roy. Ego te absolvo. I also need to make a special thank you to Sly from the History Podcasters server on Discord because he was able to get me some sources that I was not otherwise able to get. He went digging through his book collection and took a bunch of pictures so that I could have some Guicciardini in my life, and thank you very much for that. With that, we could say thank you and goodbye. Bye. <laughs> mm -hmm.